0: This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley.
1: And I'm Peter Sir.
0: And you're all very welcome to this morning's show.
1: Today, Enda interviews Aoife Lyle, whose debut poetry collection Mother Nature has just been published by Bloodaxe Books. And I'll have the pleasure
0: of talking to a surprise writer guest on this, our last Books for Breakfast podcast before we break for the summer. And we've been delighted um, because so many people have listened to us over the year. Thanks very much, everyone. And I hope you enjoy today's episode. We'll see you again in September. So, the coffee's made.
1: The toast is on.
0: And the books are on the table. It's a whole year since Books for Breakfast, our podcast about books and writing, began. It's hard to believe, Peter, a whole year gone.
1: It is indeed hard to believe, yeah.
0: And we've we've talked and to and interviewed so many writers and poets. We've uh, discussed so many books. It's been a really exciting year, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I have to say, yeah. No, just <laughs> we didn't expect. We didn't know what we were getting into, and we didn't realise how much reading we were going to be doing and how many people we were actually going to be talking to.
0: But it was a great way as I think especially during the pandemic to get people talking and discussing books and thanks to everybody listening and who's followed us along the way it's been really great. Well a whole year and in that year things have been happening in our house we've been busy writing too and Peter Sir is a naturally modest poet and writer but I'm going to embarrass him now a little bit because he has a book out a new book out called Intimate City a collection of essays about Dublin. And I've been living in the house, watching him, reading and researching and scribbling. It's a book which has been on the go for many, many years. And so it's absolutely brilliant to see it out. And as usual, Gallery Press have done a brilliant job producing a a lovely looking book. But the title, Peter, Intimate City, it comes from one of your poems, doesn't it?
1: It does, yeah. It comes from from a poem uh, written several years ago and That was describing kind of drifting through the city and wandering through it and trying to find at the time somewhere to to live. We drifted through the intimate city like dust, like light, settling briefly, silent but alert, looking for an opening. That was a p- from a poem called called The Hunt.
0: Yeah, we drifted like dust. Oh, I love that. I love that. And also, Peter, I have to say, I remember when I first met you in the mid-1990s, which seems like a lifetime ago, you took me on a date. And it wasn't a traditional date. You took me to the old city wall from Christchurch. You, t- you took me up Thomas Street. You told me about pigs that were roaming the city in medieval times you told me about children in cages on Thomas Street you brought me up to St Catherine's Church you talked to me about Robert Emmett and how he'd been hanged just opposite the church there and you really I remember brought the city alive for me and I think that's exactly what this book does which makes it so fascinating I mean you are a poet. You've published 11 poetry collections. You started off with a book called Marginal Zones. You've written, as I said, 11 collections right up to the recent Gravity Wave. The thing is, you won the Michael Hartnett Award in 2011. Your selected poems appeared in 2004. You won the Patrick Kavanagh and Ashoknesi Awards. You're a member of Estonia. You've done a lot of writing in terms of poetry, but this is different in your poetry, the city has always fascinated you, and now in prose, the city has fascinated you. But were you always, always hooked on the city of Dublin? Because I mean, you weren't—you weren't born here.
1: I wasn't born here. I think I've always been interested in cities, um, full stop. I mean, I mean, all kinds of cities—ancient cities in particular—always fascinated. Even as a kid growing up and looking at encyclopedias and reading about you know old cities, cities of Mesopotamia, the very first cities, the whole notion of cities and walls and and c- communities kind of coming together to live together and and the rules and Regulations that applied, you know, Greek cities, city states, all of that. So, I mean, that that was always a kind of fascination. And I suppose, yeah, I mean, it, it is true that I'm not from Dublin. I came here as a child, and so I'm a, I'm a latecomer, blow into it. And I think that probably fed my fascination with it. Just, just you know, it was a, a new place for me. And I used to want. I mean, as I got older, I used to love wandering around. I was just wandering around, kind of the suburbs where where I lived, and venturing into the centre on, um, on the bus to kind of wander up um, into the toy shops and going into Hector Grays in, in Liffey Street and wandering around Moore Street and, you know, buying bangers or whatever. But just just becoming obsessed with that, just that, 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 that kind of, the, the city, I suppose, which features in a lot of the book, which is the, the city centre, the, you know, the central area, the, the old kind of medieval core of Dublin. So, yeah.
0: And I'm thinking of what she just said there, that she came to Dublin as a newcomer. And, I mean, it isn't the first time that somebody from the outside, it has written about the city of Dublin. I'm thinking of Louis McNeese's fantastic poem, Dublin. And it took a, you know, a poet from the north to, to write about the city in such a fantastic poem. But the writings of other people I know have influenced, influenced you, um, not just as a reader, but as a writer about the city. I'm thinking of people like W.G. Seybold, Jan Morris, other writers, Peter, who've written about cities have influenced you. Isn't that right?
1: Yeah there's there, yeah there's I mean, yes Sable is, is an you know absolutely fantastic uh, writer of course but I mean there's you know there's people who've written about about cities John Morris you mentioned but people who wander around cities I mean people like uh, I don't know I mean a person who who whose work I liked we talked about on the podcast last year Alexandra Horowitz wrote a book about wandering around New York um but also people like uh Jacques Reda, who wrote the brilliant ruins of Paris, where he kind of wanders around Paris on his moped and just and, and writes these kind of pieces but you know there 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 have been so many kind of writers and and city i mean I mentioned you know Walter benjamin and and Paris and his like arcades project his attempt to kind of capture paris and all all of that fed into it i suppose um i mean cities i mean there's you know there 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 are there are great there have always been great writers about, about cities.
0: And um, I suppose I've been lucky enough because I've been living in the house with you and I've seen this book as it developed. I've watched it and I've I've often been there as we walked around and witnessed things and then have seen them being transformed into pieces of prose. And it was interesting to me that the first part of this book, the preface, was actually the last piece that you wrote. And I I find it a particularly beautiful piece, I suppose, because I remember the two of us taking off quite recently, actually, and walking around the pepper canister, which was one of our favourite haunts. And would you like to just perhaps lead us into this piece, Peter, or maybe just read a short piece of the, well, I'm calling it the preface. Is
1: that what you call it? I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's the first kind of thing, It's the first piece in the book, but it's not, it, it is true, like the very first piece and the very last piece were written last. And I wanted to, because I, I mean, this book, I mean, I suppose I should say, I mean, it's not a recent book. It's been, it's, it's been you know, I've been writing it for about 10 years and there have been lots of breaks where I kind of broke off to do other things, or to you know, write a book of poems. I wrote a novel as well. I kind of forgot about it for a long time, and then I didn't know what to do with the work. I kind of, I was, I was writing pieces, and I had the idea maybe it might make a book, but I didn't really have, you know, I didn't really pursue that. And um,
0: I think also great thanks has to go to Morris Earls in Books Upstairs because he runs our um, he. Edits a Dublin
1: Review of Books, and um, do you want to say a bit about Morris, feature? Well, 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 that's right. I mean, I think it was even your suggestion. I think you 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 said that i love loads of these essays hanging hanging around doing nothing, and and he expressed an interest in seeing them. And then you know a, f- a good few of them were published in the in the Dublin Review of Books, and that aroused a little bit of interest, and it kind of gave me the idea that maybe there's something here after all. Maybe these things kind of cohere, and although they're essays. Like literally, you know, the the old kind of attempt, the old definition of that, you know, as a kind of an effort, an attempt at something. There are, you know, attempts to kind of set down different things, different aspects of of the city. But it's it's kind of a unified whole, you know. It's a kind of a coherent book as as well. I think in that, you know, the city is at the heart of every single kind of piece. Yeah. In that, in 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 some way, it's present or it's past. Yeah. Or,
0: yeah. Well, it's fantastic that someone like Morris Earls and Dublin Review of Books as well brings to life, uh, something like this book by publishing the essays. And as you said, it does make a whole. But we were talking about, about writers there and the title of the preface or the beginning of the book is Someone is Leading Our Old Lives, which is a line, of course, from the poet John Montague.
1: And, and Peter, you know, um would you would you start by reading a little piece from it, maybe? I just read a little piece from it and it's wandering around that area and it's supposed I suppose because you know, wandering around in this peculiar, quiet, kind of deserted time um, around the kind of, you know, the Georgian area of, of Dublin, which is a very quiet area anywhere, you know, places that no one can afford to live because it's so expensive and also a place that's quietened down even more by the by the pandemic and, and that, that sense of walking around furtively almost uh, this kind of neighbourhood. And looking at, you know, there's just a couple of kind of statues there and this is kind of looking at those There's Rowan Gillespie's statue birdie perched on the ledge of of Crescent Hall, about to fly off. So so I think of that. I think of Rowan Gillespie's naked woman scaling the wall of the treasury building, now removed as if her naked gesture troubled the economy. At least his birdie is still ready to fly, her aspirations secure. A bronze child swings from a lamppost below her. You have to be a statue around here to swing from a lamppost. A little further up, a bronze John B. Keane towers over a bronze Brian Freel. I admire Brian Freel's jumper and sternly folded arms. Like Keane, he seems to be contemplating an absent stage. There's not enough action here for either. Writer statues are a troublesome bunch. Holding still is not a writerly thing. We wander into Herbert Street, thinking of Behan, a released bull, toppling into John Montague's basement. A light is burning late in this Georgian Dublin street. Someone is leading our old lives. Maybe a descendant of that poem's cat, tiny emissary of our happiness, since all the basements are unoccupied now. Crap's mother died here, number 21, the Merriam Nursing Home, after her long viduity, as did his creator's mother. It sits forlorn and abandoned looking at the end of the terrace behind a faded purple door in its Greek portico, the kind of place you would not be surprised to end up in after a long viduity. A mind city, the bits and pieces of imagination strewn around, our footsteps circling, stalking our territory, extending their reach, wanting to draw things in, things, people... Books, windows, streets, a kind of greed, all this wanting, which maybe is what this book is a chain of linked desires to explore the city past and present, to walk it, to drink in details the light on the brick, the barges in the canal, the rushes on the bank, rooms and walls, the foot scraper outside a front door, listening for the steps of those who've been here before tradesmen and artists, market sellers, beggars and beadles, mapmakers and builders, to greet time, stop it on the pavement before it scurries off, look. I keep wanting to say again, the black stone of the Lutheran church, Gottesdienst, Elf Elfur, the sun on the iron ear, the tram clattering. Stop. That's enough. But of course, it never is. Oh,
0: Peter, well done. And also I loved when you said a series of linked desires, the past and the present coming together and you really have a great way of making the past feel present. And of course, it's not just about writers. I know there were mentions of writers there, but um, I would like to mention one house that we pass often on our rambles around the city. Um, It's along by the canal and it's got a plaque stating that a certain writer lived there for seven winters of her life. And it's a writer that I really love. Would you like to talk a bit about that, Peter?
1: Well, just that. I mean, I mean, because you know the canal is part of our daily uh, route. I mean, we often walk from along along that stretch of the canal, say from uh, before kind of Portobello right to the end to kind of docklands, and of course you enter all kinds of literary territory there. You know um you you walk past the statue to or a little kind of sort of stone marking where paul paul smith used to live and then there's Caven of course the famous Cavanaugh seat and you think of Caven's Bacatonia this is the the area the village of kind of Bagot Street and the area around where he used to to live and, and patrol and wander and all all of his life lived in 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 the compass of that, of those huge streets and then a little further you walk up and and there is Elizabeth Bowen and, and you know and I had been reading her book Seven Winters, which, of course, you know, is an account of the seven years as a child that she that she spent. In that, and she remembers her childhood, and she remembers being walked around by her governess through the streets, and she remembers coming back. It's just, it's a portrait of a completely vanished uh, city, and it's, it's it's a fascinating piece by by, uh, yeah, of course, a very brilliant writer.
0: Yeah, and it's wonderful that you bring that into the book because perhaps there are people who walk past that frequently and haven't spotted it. And I think it's a great book because it will bring people back to the city and observing it more closely. But also maps. I know as a poet, you've you've written often about maps. I remember buying you once for Christmas a present of John Speed's map of Dublin. He was the man who did the first ever map of Dublin. Isn't that right, Peter?
1: You know, it's, it's the first uh, map of the old kind of medieval city. We don't even know if he actually came here or if he, uh, you know, he, it's the speculation that he did it based on reports or, or drawings made, made by others um but certainly it's it's the first kind of map you know and and, and shows the you know so it's the guts of the of the medieval city that is that is still there the more the more famous one maybe is the john rock 1756 map which is an extraordinary thing of, a, a map of, of of great beauty and the one that shows the much expanded 18th century city and you know the, the city that we're still kind of very familiar with because because the city, the city, the centre of the city is still so much, um, that sort of shape and form and and was determined by those 18th century kind of architects. And you see it in all the, the, the amazing, I mean, the, the fact that the street names have remained the same, the roots are the same. Um, so, yeah, I was totally obsessed. When I wanted to find out, I, I kind of became interested, in, like, you know, who was John Rock? Where did he came, you know, come from? The Huguenot background and the fact that, even, you know, because the map has... Um, it's like little secret codes for for where all the Huguenot churches are and, and, and that kind of thing as, as as well, usually kind of hidden in kind of laneways. And, you know, so it was reaching back into his own Huguenot past and his family coming from France and then his, his life in London and his kind of gradually getting involved in, in cartography and all of, all of the rest of that. So I kind of, uh, I just became interested in that. So it's kind of what brought him to, to Dublin and his description of Dublin and at the time. So all those things came together because maps I mean I'm always I mean I am have to say, obsessed by it, by
0: maps Well know. you spoke about Shaq earlier I love the intimacy of the book that personal stories come into it too um, and I suppose I am biased but one of the pieces I particularly like um, is the piece where you're taking our daughter Freya to her crash when she was only about three or four and the routine and the ritual of setting forth and entering the city early in the morning and finding um, your roots through our neighbourhood which is in Dublin 8. I found that so beautiful but then I suppose I am biased but I was wondering would you just read a short piece from that Peter?
1: Okay so maybe I'll just read a bit from the beginning of that uh, A Morning walk. Because it will end soon, I'm possessed by a sudden urge to memorialise it. This ritual the morning offers us, or rather, the series of rituals through which we enter the day. After breakfast, we leave the house, my five-year-old daughter, the dog, and myself. The leaving is itself a complex ritual. The dog waits at the top of the stairs, anxious and excited. Will it happen, or will they forget me? Will I have to content myself with looking out the living room window and hurling myself against the glass if any other creature appears? His tail thumps against the stair carpet as he watches us putting our coats on. I go back into the living room to get the lead. I give it a mild shake, a tiny wrist flick. It's enough. The dog comes bounding down the stairs in a fever of excitement. He jumps up on his hind legs and butts the door, almost as if the issue were still in doubt and we might yet fail him. I'm tempted to clip the lead quickly onto his collar and get him out before he explodes but that is my daughter's task and I know better than to disturb any part of her ritual. It takes her a while to control the dog enough to get the lead on but eventually it's accomplished and we can leave. She is the gate opener and the gate closer. Finally, we're on the pavement and the journey can begin. We set off, the three of us, three different but connected journeys. I hold my daughter's hand as she skips down the street. In my other, I hold the lead firmly as the dog wheels and lunges, imposing himself, warning off any creature foolish enough to break the circle of power he throws around himself. We walk up to the not great, noisy thoroughfare of Clambrassel Street, packed with slow-moving cars, motorcycles, bikes. We stand on the edge of the pavement, waiting for a gap to get us across to the central island. Even here, the dog is foolish enough to race after a cat or another dog. I shorten the lead and hold tight. Eventually we cross the swarming river of traffic and escape into St. Kevin's Parade by the side of Boo Ali. This is the entrance to another world, an island of red-bricked quiet patrolled by cats. Freya greets the two ginger cats generally to be found near the side entrance of the takeaway or outside the door of the cottage alongside it. The owner leaves out food for the strays. The ginger cats are fearless and merely stare at the dog. But the smaller, darker cats dive under cars and his dignity is appeased.
0: Oh, Thanks Peter for that and I love as well in the acknowledgements the way you say two dogs and one daughter thanks Freya have contributed heavily to the wanderings which fed this book (laughs) one of our dogs sadly died yes sadly died but it is great that it is um, a living walk through the city as well and of course you and Freya you're contemporary people in the city in this book but there are the the book is populated by other people who lived in the city in various times and one of the people I I remember you were obsessed with, was a man called James Whitelaw. He was rector of St. Catherine's Church um, and she was rector around the time when Robert Emmett lived. Is that right, Peter? That's
1: right. Yeah.
0: So and he decided that he would carry out a census of the area, Isn't that right? And yeah. um, I remember the excitement when you were writing about this, when you were telling me about him. But maybe you could fill the listeners in a little bit, Peter, about this man, James Whitelaw.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, he was rector of St. Catherine's Church at this kind of late eighteenth century, and he he decided he wanted to make a census. He wanted to find out, you know, how how many people lived in in the city, and he was but he was very much kind of a social reformer. I think that was it was it was kind of part of his desire to better the 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 life of people. He thought of what if you had a proper record of the people and the conditions they lived in, it would be maybe easier. And so he picked that hot summer, hot trouble summer of seventeen ninety eight to make it, to go around and make a, a census of the city of, of Dublin. Mm-hmm. And so, and I mean, because it was outside, I mean, that's the thing, you know, only only five years after this, in 1803, it was outside his church that, that Emmett is hanged yeah. drawn and quartered, you know, so he must have seen that mm-hmm. as well. So it's kind of, so, so that comes into the essay as well.
0: It must be hard for you, Peter, to walk around the city, particularly in spots like that. I mean, I always think of Robert Emmett there, but do you find, um, I know this, we're going a bit aside here now, but as you walk through the city that you, you sometimes are getting the senses and the smells and the, you're feeling the people there that you have read about.
1: Certainly they, they they kind of leak into your kind of well, into your head, into your into your imagination. I mean, yeah, you you're and you're you're kind of listening out for them in a way, you know, as you walk in their footsteps.
0: So the ghosts the ghosts are ever present yeah. and alive, alive as well. So um so that's that's so interesting. But anyway, do you, would you like to read a tiny bit from that piece about James Whitelaw?
1: Yeah, sure. Okay, so this is this is him kind of going around doing his senses. White Lord trudges through the dark alleys and stinking lanes, thinking of himself as a historian of wretchedness. He gets up early and often finds himself in a room less than 15 foot square, where between 10 and 16 people lie stretched on a wad of filthy straw, crawling with vermin, not a blanket between them. In a house in Braithwaite Street, he counts 108 occupants. The exact numbers are important. Perhaps he thinks when the facts have been irrefutably established, the way will lie open to properly administer charity and educational opportunity. Joseph's Lane near Castle Market, a sudden rainstorm beating down. It is not always easy to gain entry to these houses. As he steps across the threshold, he suddenly halted by a bloody mess, alive with maggots, which has burst in through the back door from the slaughterhouse adjoining the house. The hall is buried under the stinking flood. There's no way he can get in, but the job must be done somehow so he retreats back into the lane and finds an old plank and some stones. Having constructed his bridge, he makes for the stairs, attracting interest from the residents who simply wade through the blood. As he climbs the stairs, he sees water pouring through the house. The roof is in disrepair, as so often in these houses, and he knows it will remain in that condition as long as the house is standing, just as he knows that the rent will continue to be collected punctually. He stops at each room and takes takes his count. He can barely endure the stench now. No one remarks on it. Can it be that they don't smell it? In the garret, he finds a shoemaker and his family, seven in all. The room has no door. They explain to him that because the shoemaker couldn't pay the week's rent, the enraged landlord has taken away the door in hopes that they will quit the building. This house holds 37 people. White Dog does a quick calculation and concludes that out of this ruin, the landlord will get more than £30 a year coldly extracted. Every Saturday night.
0: So nothing really changes about landlords, does it, Peter? There you are. It's it's horrifying to read that. But all those details wading through blood. I mean, did you spend a lot of time in libraries, Peter, looking things up and
1: a little bit of time in libraries, and just reading and, and you know, reading in that case, um own account of it. But there was yeah, so so certainly you know, I, I went you know, I went into the archives, I read, you know, old you know, documents and and books and so on. So there was a bit of research that went into it, yeah.
0: I suppose So when you think of of writers like Hilary Mantel, who I really love, there does come a point, I think, in writing where research has to be put aside, isn't that right? And the imagination has to take over.
1: Pretty much. And yeah and, and trying and and forgetting all that although then again when we're when we're putting the notes when we're putting the book together, I had to go and find out you know where did I come across where you know getting all the references correct so that was and that was, that was a big job and it's a big job and and again, gallery were an, enormously helpful in in that and being very punctilious about about the references and and getting the right kind of attributions in place.
0: Well, Peter, in this book, I mean, I've said to you along the way, what is this book, Peter? How would you define it? But then, of course, I came across the word flaneur. And I actually think that is what you are in this book. You are a flaneur. You're a writer of the city. You're rambling around. Would you like to talk a bit about that? And I know it didn't didn't that definition come from Walter Benjamin?
1: Well, I suppose I mean I mean yeah, I mean that that's that's a particular idea of of, you know, um people walking or poets and, and, and writers walking around and looking at cities like like Paris and so on. But I mean, yeah, to an extent. I mean, in a sense of somebody kind of aimlessly wandering around and being inspired by that and looking and kind of listening and Trying to attend to the city in that way, uh, imaginatively—that's that would certainly be part of it. And in a way, I'm a kind of, you know, I'm kind of loose and in in disciplined in in that way. Like it's not a very methodical book, mm-hmm. you know. There are long chapters, or you know, kind of research heavy. There are also things that are, that are a single sentence and or or like half a page impressions as well. So, mm-hmm. so in that sense, it is it's a kind of fl- 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 flinouring. It's kind of like a mental fl- flinouring, maybe.
0: Well, Peter, we could go on forever, So, but I think we have actually reached the end now. And many thanks for talking to us about your new book, Intimate City, a collection of essays about Dublin published by Gallery Press. And as usual, details of this book can be found on com. Aoife Lyles' debut, Mother Nature, was published this year by Bloodaxe Books, and we're really delighted to have Aoife here at the breakfast table to talk about this intimate book of poems, which celebrates the overwhelming joy of birth and parenthood, but also the devastation of miscarriage, a heart-rending subject which in this book is tackled with great honesty, imagination and tenderness. Eva was born and raised in Dublin. She studied English at Trinity College Dublin and then went on to complete her MPhil in Medieval Literature at St John's University of Cambridge and she later received a PGDE in English at the University of Aberdeen. She was awarded an Emerging Scottish Writer Residency by Cove Park in 2020 and she was twice shortlisted for the Hennessy New Irish Writing Awards in 2016 and 2018. Her poetry has been shortlisted in the Wells Festival of Literature Open Poetry Competition and the Jane Martin Poetry Prize. Her poetry has appeared in many literary magazines and Eva has worked as a guest curator for the Scottish Poetry Library and for Butcher's Dog. Her reviews have appeared in publications such as PN Review and Poetry London and Eva Lyle now lives in the Scottish Highlands with her family, which to me sounds very romantic and lovely. So Aoife, you are very, very welcome. So, uh, welcome to the breakfast table. Um, and we're going to start off with the first poem in the collection called Sounds of That Day after Norman McCaig. And of course, I was then reminded of his own brilliant poem, Sounds of the Day, about a parting of two people. Um, he said, you left me beside the quietest fire in the world. I thought I was hurt in my pride only, forgetting that when you plunge your hand in freezing water, you feel a bangle of ice round your wrist, wrist before the whole hand goes numb. So Aoife, the leaving in your poem is of a very different kind to Norman McCaig. And maybe I was wondering, could you lead us into your poem and then read
2: it for us? It would be lovely to hear it. Absolutely. It's it's lovely to be here. And with with the poem, Norman McCaig's original poem, it's about that that leaving, that separating of two people. And yeah. and it came to my mind about it, it's it's hard to leave someone who you have known, perhaps you've loved. But then when you have to take leave of someone you've never met yet and 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 you're leaving not just them but the potential of who they might have been and and the life they, they may have lived. And it's very weighted in the sense that there's also a level of personal responsibility at play that doesn't have to be rational or logical. But there's that sense that in 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 any relationship that ends that there's a feeling of what what else could I have done, what could I have done better, and that sense of unreality that Norman McCague brings to his poem was very much chimed with with the experience that I was having and and I felt at the time that it was it was the closest though not the same uh experience of of a loss and of and of a quiet grief that I could capture again sitting beside the fire the idea of the silence the idea of the of the quiet as well um so this was one of the first poems that I wrote after it happened and, um, and it was very important to me to have that reference. And it's why I wrote these poems, was that for anybody who might experience something like this in the future, it's it's that something is there because the silence of it is is just awful. Um, so difficult to write, but but also why it's one I like to read a lot, because it would be easy not to read it. Um, and it's important, so I'll, I'll read it just now. Sounds of that day after Norman McCaig. When a silence came, it was your heart not beating. When the door hushed, it was the shuffle of a midwife, leaving us alone in our private grief. A muffled clanging 10 yards down the corridor was the news breaking and unbreaking in the filing cabinet. When the black biro rolled, it was me falling and falling into myself. When the door clipped shut behind us, it was the end of all the silences there were. They left us in the busiest corridor in the hospital. I thought I was hurt in my body only, not knowing that when your body sleeps, your mind feels all those kicks in your round stomach before you wake and the whole world goes numb. Thanks for that, Eva.
0: And of course, it's just one of the personal heartbreaking poems in Mother Nature, which really... I think quite bravely revealed the pain um, of miscarriage and just listening to you there and talking about Norma Kaig as well the word silence in the poem that you've just read it's also repeated elsewhere in the collection in the poem Gravediggers for instance you say leave me with my immeasurable silence expecting nothing in return and in your note also at the beginning of the book you say nothing prepares you for the loss of a child I turned to what I knew and found only more absence more silence could you talk a little bit more about this silence?
2: Absolutely. Um, it's and and it's something that's hard to talk about because to talk about a yeah. silence, you have to break it, and yeah. and and that was that again a, a big reason why why I wrote the poems and why there are so many of them in there. And it was the biggest thing that struck me was in the aftermath of 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 you know sharing that this had happened with friends or or work colleagues. How many people said me too you know I've mm. I I lost a child some some people had lost three or four um, some people I, I know who have had eight before they've had their first child and and it was amazing that almost every woman I had spoken to had 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 mm. been through this experience and and you didn't know and a lot of it is to do with for, for me, and it's something that I'm looking at in the next book, it's, it's that mix of something that it's very, very prevalent. So people bring across that association is that it's common and therefore not remarkable in the sense that you don't remark upon it. It's one of those things that happen and you move on. But it's, it's, it's not that. Like I mentioned before, there's a different level of loss and a different level of grief for which you can feel personally culpable So you, Mm -hmm. you don't tell people there's the idea as well as that you're telling them about something that didn't happen or that almost happened. And, and again, something that I wrote at the, at the start of the book is that it feels like, or it can be made to feel like an indulgence to say, you know, why are you still upset about this? Or if uh, you, you have a child afterwards, it's almost seen to, to even things out and that's, we know from any relationship that a, a new relationship doesn't change the old one doesn't negate it yeah
0: um, yeah, I thought that was really good in the introduction when you said it's something for for which grief is indulgent and mourning is indecent. I thought that was that was very interesting. Um but the subject um of of miscarriage obviously it's it's deeply painful and it's present in memorable poems such as Month's Mind, Hospital Canteen, Haunted, all really fine poems. And the subject, it's of course vital, it's crucial, but also I thought they are really finely wrought poems? Your poem Ubi Sund for instance, I think it succeeds through a series of kind of sustained questions and it's fair to say that the trauma of the experience is made palpable I thought anyway as much by the emotional life of the poem as it is by the craft and the structure of it um, where are your heartbeats and your small breaths, is this all there is, is this all I get and this kind of repetition that goes on throughout the poem. Did the craft of writing Aoife, um, which is so apparent in these poems, do the craft help you through the pain and help alleviate it in some way?
2: I think if not necessarily that it alleviated the pain it, it gave it a shape that I could hang on to and mm-hmm. it, it's it's a thing that we say that the reason that we're, we can be scared of the dark or the shadows is because the things that exist in there are immeasurable you can't, you can't mm-hmm. see the outlines so you don't know is it a big thing, is it a small thing and, and being able to take these experiences and like you said pin them down until they were right it, it, it let me put myself a step away and focus on the craft of it and not yeah. not the full glare of the experience. But I also did it very much with that sense of responsibility towards the people who would read it. And I know a lot of writers wouldn't uh, adhere to the framework of writing for the people who are going to read. You know, a lot of advice is you, you write what you want to write and, and people will read what you have written. But with an experience like that, that's still only coming to the fore, only being kind of talked about in public discourse. It it is being written about, but those you know that writing still needs to come out in a more public way. Is I wanted them to be meticulous because I didn't want someone to read one of these and feel like I had been careless. Mm -hmm. Because it's while there's a big, um, I suppose a big push to say to people you need to talk about this and it's okay to talk about it. People still don't know how or or how to to listen um, as well yeah. because, again, for a lot of people, a miscarriage will happen before they've told people that they're pregnant. So then, I mean, I, I certainly had the experience before I had children of somebody telling me that they had lost a baby that I didn't know they were having and I didn't know what to yeah. say because... Yeah. Because the news was supposed to be something that was really happy and then it wasn't. And then you're, you're caught in this dreadful limbo and you, you can listen, but you haven't learned what to say. If, if somebody loses a parent or a friend or a relative, we have rituals for that. We have idioms and phrases and cards and, and all of these things that we can do. But, but we haven't learned as a society what to do when we find this out. Yeah,
0: I mean, they are, meticulous is such a good word because I think that's exactly what they are. But if you've, there's a fine balance in this collection as well, I think. The poems do deal with grief and loss, but they also do deal with the joy of parenthood and the gift of motherhood that did actually come to you. Um, I love the sheer joy of a poem like Baby Blanket, um, where it opens, I cast you into the arms of aunts and uncles and grandparents. They pass you back and forth like yarn, careful to hide the dropped stitches and essential tensions holding us together. That's beautiful. And it's just not about being a mother either, which I really liked. There's... um a very short and beautiful poem called Seabed, a four line poem, and it describes the baby's dad and his steady breath, the swell that brings you home. Um it's great that motherhood and parenting has spawned for you lots of poems as well in this this collection of kind of familial love, really. Um that must have been a joy to write those as well, was it? Aoife? It was absolutely wonderful.
2: And and again, part of the reason why I wrote them is because when you're thinking about having children or you're you're expecting when the baby's very young you can actually get quite a lot of the the negative side of it and and you certainly experience it you know the the lack of sleep and um you know it, there's a lot of pain involved that you don't know about there's a lot of uh, bodily changes that nobody tells you about until really really late on um, kind of the if you knew you'd never do it which you know i hope they don't use the same logic with pilots uh, or or doctors like oh, we, we won't tell you what happens just in case um but it but it's there are those little tiny little moments that are just gorgeous and and you don't just want to send them in a text because you're going you're you're not going to get the feeling of it and I'm someone who likes to write letters i'm someone who likes to take pictures and videos and things, but what I liked of being able to put them into poems was that I was able to capture not just the light or the shadow but that whole that whole feeling that that I couldn't record otherwise, you know at two in the morning when the baby's asleep and you're just thinking this is so nice, but, you know, you're not going to take a picture of that. You're not going to send a message to someone and say, I'm sitting here at two in the morning. It's lovely. But also because it's sometimes you, you, sometimes you almost don't want to share those things because it looks like you're showing off or, or you're, you're kind of purposely not mentioning all those other things. Um, so it was nice even, you know, for example, one of the poems the, called Silt, which is about the dirt between the baby's fingers. I wrote that after my son was born. Uh, who's my who's my second? Um, because I'd forgotten that it had happened with my daughter. So I suddenly went, "Oh, I forgot! I've forgotten about this little bit." And I went, "Right, I want to make a memory of that, and I want to put it down, and I want to think about it." And when they're you know they're six, ten, and and they're you know two thousand miles away, or they're in Australia, I'm I'm going to come back and remember this little stage that only lasted a few weeks, and it's and it's there, and it's and it's lovely because it's it. You can lose the joy in in the grand scheme of the day in the same way that you feel like you need to hide the grief in the grand scheme of the joy. So it was nice for me to be able to acknowledge both.
0: Yeah, the delicacy of those moments. Well, we started off, Eva, talking about Norman McCaig's poem and how it inspired you to write the first poem of your book. You live in the Scottish Highlands and Scotland has produced so many brilliant poets. Hugh MacDiarmid, W.S. Graham, Edwin Morgan, Jackie Kay, Kathleen Jamie. Have these great poets inspired you um, at all in your writing? I mean, coming from Ireland and then you're suddenly in this, in this other world, which is equally as rich in literature. It must be a great place to live and write in.
2: It's it's absolutely fantastic, and and particularly where I live, I'm I'm five miles away from Loch Ness, so I can I can go down to the bottom of my road, and if I turn left, I'm in Loch Ness. If I turn right, I go to the shops. Uh, <laughs> so sometimes I, so, I I sneakily turn left first, uh, and I just say there's yeah. a queue and Mm -hmm. and it's and it's fantastic because living here in particular you're very built into the landscape it's not being flattened out for you 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 have to make do with the hills and the trees and the mountains out the window and there's a sense of of space um that is that is that is wonderful and it's it's unhurried as well because if i want to Mm -hmm. nip to edinburgh well, that that's a three and a half hour journey, um, or nice. to Aberdeen is two hours. So you you learn to take these chunks of time and and to take them for yourself as well. And mm. with with all those those great poets that you mentioned as well, it's it's that you're getting that chance to be part of something that you know is already there, and it's fantastically welcoming as as well. And I very much feel that I get to be part of the Irish. Um, scene of what's going on at the moment as well as the Scottish one so I feel quite lucky in, yeah, in, in that right. I get to do that and get to see uh, new new poets coming up all the time as well because mm. so am I and it's nice, it's nice yeah. to be growing up with this body of, of, of women as well who are writing and the diversity of what they're writing about because a lot of I know at the moment there can be a lot of talk about do women always have to write about the things that are painful to them? And and that that is a big conversation and it's worth happening. But I also like that there is a a platform to say, this is the thing I want to write about now. And and when you see other women doing it and they're talking about it, they're having these conversations and they turn around and go, "Are are you coming in as well? Like there's a space for you if you want to take it. And that's fantastically mm-hmm. empowering because then you turn around when you get the chance and go, "There's a space for you as well. Would you like to join us?" Uh, which is great mm-hmm. because again, in school, you can study all these fantastic poets, but then you start to find out that some of them are are still around, and you can talk mm-hmm. to them, and you can meet them, or you can write them letters and ask them questions. And it's it's fantastic to to be looking at it from both sides of the water in that sense. And there's that there's a lovely. Um, There's a lovely friendship that you get between uh, Irish poets and Scottish poets, which I, even when I was in school with, if we met people from a Scottish school, we kind of went, "Will we just be friends. It kind of went, yeah, we'll just be friends. Yeah, Um, that's great. So it's lovely in that sense as well.
0: (laughs) yeah. But talking about um famous poets, there is um a famous Irish poet also mentioned in the book, mm-hmm. um Mr. Heaney. Mm-hmm. Um so while the others are away, obviously um you're referring or you're being partly inspired by his wonderful poem, um You're sitting in the sitting room on the floor with your young child peeling potatoes. It's a beautiful poem, Aoife. And I was wondering, could we end this section of the conversation by you reading it and maybe leading us into it?
2: Yeah, absolutely, and um, it's it's kind of like what you were saying before about finding those small joys and and small moments. And there are days when it's when it's hard, and it's and it's you and the baby, and it feels like you're the only ones in the world, and that can be a hard thing. Um, but when I wrote this poem, it was one of those days when it was just lovely. We just existed in our own time and space and there was, it, was, it was bright and it was windy. It wasn't too cold. It wasn't too warm. And we were just, we were very relaxed in ourselves. And it, it was that sense of, um, it was my son and he was just starting to sit up. And, and that's what I would do. Uh, when the others had gone off, I would sit and I would prep the dinner on, on the floor uh, while, while he was playing. And uh, that, that's where I got the idea for this. And of course, with Heaney, you know, the, the legacy that he has is not just that his poems are, are beautiful in their sound, but it's, it's the small things that he captures that you would think nobody would notice. And that's what I like, the the small moments. And he makes them very beautiful. Um, So this is While the Others Were Away. While the Others Are Away. After Seamus Heaney. Him at work, her at school. I sit with you on the sitting room floor and peel potatoes. Surrounded by cushions, you watch the knife slice through each Maris Piper. Your hands reaching, grasping, dropping, one by one, the potatoes halved and heaped between us like playthings. Delighting in the spectacle of the stop and splash, the satisfied thump and thud of the filling pot. Job done, you touch your fingers to my lips. I kiss your hands and they taste of starch and home. Oh, thanks
0: so much, Eva. So that was Eva Lyle, um, reading from and talking to me about Mother Nature, her new and debut collection of poetry published by Bloodaxe. Um, so do go out and buy it. It's such a great book. I've been really enjoying it. But Aoife, now it's time for the Toaster Challenge, where you get to talk about a book that you really love for three minutes. We won't put any pressure on you. Um, Peter's there getting the bread ready. He's going to put it down into the toaster. So I'll count you and Aoife, one, two, three, and off you go. Okay,
2: So the book that I have chosen is Sarah Baum's uh, A Line Made by Walking. So the story in itself is a straightforward one. So Frankie is 25 turning 26 uh, and she isn't quite sure what to do with herself. But after reading it, uh, it back in 2018, I sent Sarah a card and it was a card that made it all the way to, as she called it, uh, the rusty biscuit tin she uses as a letterbox. And I told her, I didn't know that we were allowed to write like this. It's a concentric structure of a line made by walking that makes it magnificent. What I love about this book is the repetition. Because life is all about repetition. Um, That there are things that we do day in, day out, all day, every day, with only our thoughts to make something new of them. And throughout the book, Frankie strives to link herself or her circumstances to a specific artwork or artist. So each chapter, uh, which which, uh, each one is named for an animal that's been found dead and photographed within its pages. Uh, Each chapter is further filled with questions and answers about art. So this is Frankie's way of keeping in touch with herself, even as she celebrates and chastises the same self for seeing art in everything and seeing everything as art. Now, the title refers to a path that you make when you walk through tall grass. So it's a path that's real, but it's also temporary and it needs to be stepped through again and again and again. And if you aren't willing to make that space for yourself over and over again to continuously test yourself or make self make a space for yourself in the world, then it and you are going to cease to exist. And Frankie knows it. As for Frankie... I like that she thinks these small, vicious things. I like that she worries about small, sad things and notices the things that you think other people don't. Uh, How she doesn't remember why she left Dublin until the book is almost over. I like how she can feel utterly overwhelmed by quotidian things, that she's preoccupied with being mentally ill, but then she berates herself for not being properly ill um, as she thinks about it. You'd, and you'd think, you know, faced with her mother, the GPs, the psychiatrists, these bossy moms at the beach, that she would just lie down and acquiesce, but she doesn't. For all the ineffectualness on the surface, there is this fantastic mercurial core that refuses to be stilled. Now, part of this is fear, of course. So it's the animalistic fear of pain that will make even the most timid animal lash out. But it's also the fear of losing that pain, of becoming just a number in a file, in a drawer, in a cabinet. And why I like Frankie so much is that I I think that's what frightens her most of all, that her suffering isn't special. Wow. So that, that sounds like such an interesting read.
0: I read Spill Simmer Falter with her. I think she's so interesting because she's a visual artist herself as well, isn't she? So even the way you were describing that plot, it just sounded so artful to mm-hmm. me. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. It's published by Tramp Press who bring out such great books. Um, and, um, it's, I liked that idea when I was just listening to you there about, almost again she's elevating the ordinary isn't she she's finding inspiration in the strange which is something that could be said as well about about your book as well in parts where you're kind of elevating the ordinary Um, so thank you so much for talking to us that was Aoife Lyle talking about a line made by walking you can get that from Tramp Press Um, and also Aoife came in and spoke about her first collection of poetry which is always something to celebrate Mother Nature published by Bloodaxe Books and as usual all details of these books will be available on www.booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. Thanks, Aoife, for coming in.
2: Very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, a lovely breakfast. Well
0: done. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again?
1: Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.